Hey, good morning. All right, if you have a Bible and want to uh, follow along in it, we are in the book of Hebrews, one of the larger books in the New Testament. We'll be in chapter 2, verses 10 through 18 today. So we continue our journey through this book. This book has a lot to say about the greatness of Jesus, the Son of God. In fact, that's really the the overall message of the book is that Jesus, the Son of God, is far, far greater, far superior to anyone or anything else we might be prone to put our hope and trust in. And because he is greater, so much greater, you and I ought to pay far more attention to him than we pay to anybody else. No matter how popular they are, no matter how influential they are, no matter how much we like them, you know, we ought to value what Jesus says, what Jesus, his opinions, his teaching, his instruction, far more than we value uh, the teaching, instruction, sayings of anybody else. Because he's greater. He's great. He's wiser. He's, he's just better. Much, much better. And in the first couple of chapters, the focus has been on Jesus being greater than angels. And that might seem a little strange, you know, kind of, why, why do we need to be told that? Why... I mean, does anybody, is there anybody who thinks that angels are greater than Jesus? Well, apparently, yes. Uh, at least in the community of people that this was first written to. It was written to a, a community of, of Jewish people, some of whom had come to profess faith in Jesus as Messiah. And these are people who knew their Bibles very well. And... They knew angels are real. They knew angels are cool. Angels are these powerful, supernatural beings, and God has commissioned them at times to to bring messages to his people and to help his people. And here's the thing. Angels are a lot less controversial than Jesus. Okay? No angel ever said anything like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Wow, that is a radically controversial statement. That is radically exclusive. And no angel said that. Jesus did. So imagine you're living in a community of people, uh, some of whom have put faith in Jesus, but many of whom have not, and, you know, Jesus is controversial, and there would be this, this uh, temptation, maybe, to play it safe. And, you know, let's don't talk about things that we disagree about. Let's talk about something else, like angels, how great angels are. Okay, that is exactly what God doesn't want us to do. He does not want us to play it safe. He does not want us to back off on the Jesus thing. He doesn't want us to focus on angels. He wants us to focus on his son. 
through whom he made the universe, we were told in chapter 1. Through whom he has spoken his ultimate message to humanity. Through whom he accomplished so great a salvation for us. And in the world to come, when God's kingdom is fully established, it's not going to be ruled by an angel. It's going to be ruled by God's anointed king. Messiah is a man. And in him, God's glorious destiny for humanity will be restored. And everybody who trusts in him, not in an angel or anybody else, those who trust in him will get to share in that glorious future. Okay, but this raises a question. <clears throat> if Jesus became truly human, doesn't that somehow diminish his greatness? Especially since in becoming human, Jesus experienced suffering. He experienced humiliation. He even experienced death, an agonizing, awful, humiliating death. Well, I don't know about you, but things like suffering, humiliation, and death, uh, those, those sound like weakness. Those don't sound like greatness. Angels, on the other hand, don't die, as far as we know. They're immortal. So isn't the fact that Jesus became human, suffered and died... Isn't that an argument that he's not as great as angels? Now you might think so. But now we come to these verses in chapter 2, verses 10 to 18, and they say exactly the opposite. They say that Jesus' suffering and death as a man actually made him far greater than any angel or anybody else. It's amazing stuff. Let's begin at verse 10. It says, For it was fitting that he, and here he's talking about God the Father, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, and that's not an exclusive male term here. This is a family term. This is sons and daughters should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Okay, what does this mean? Bringing many sons to glory. Okay, that is talking about God's amazing plan to take people like you and me, fallen, broken, messed up people, who have rebelled against him, who have forfeited the amazing role that God created humanity to experience, to rule over his creation as his image, in his image. This is talking about God's plan to take undeserving rebels like us and make us his children, make us family who are destined for glory. 
That's what it means, bringing many sons to glory. And I talked about this last time we were in Hebrews, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but it is an incredibly glorious future that God has planned, that God has brought about for those who trust in Jesus. Now, how has he done this, this bringing many sons to glory? What's his, how does he do this? It was fitting that he for whom and, and by whom all things exist, God the Father, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. Don't miss it. It's saying that the Father made the Son perfect through suffering. Well, what does that mean? Wasn't Jesus already perfect? Because you know, go back to chapter 1, and we were told in very clear terms that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God, and He's the exact imprint, the exact representation of His very nature. That means, okay, that means that whatever it is that makes God God, his nature, his godness, if I can put it that way. Well, the Son has it just like the Father has it. And so if the Son was God before he became man, wasn't he already perfect? How could Jesus be made perfect through suffering? And that's me talking about all of the hardships he experienced in becoming human. All of the, including those agonizing hardships of his final hours, culminating in that brutal death by crucifixion. How could human suffering make perfect someone who was already perfect? Well, the key to understand this is what the author means by perfect. It means perfect in a different sense. It's not talking about Jesus' nature. It's not talking about his character or his morality, as if, as if there was some flaw in Jesus that needed to somehow be fixed through suffering. This is talking about perfect in the sense of being perfectly equipped complete for a certain task. So let me try to give you an illustration of what I mean. Imagine you are really thirsty. So you go in the kitchen, you open up the cupboard, and you take out a glass, and you look at it to make sure it's clean, because, you know, you got kids in the house or something. And <laughs> you never know. And you look at it, and you, and you see it is, it's flawless. Okay, there's no smudges, no streaks, no lipstick marks, <laughs> no chips, no cracks, no bubbles. In a very real sense, it's, it's a perfect glass. But you're thirsty, and it's empty. So what do you do? Well, you turn on the faucet, and you fill it up, or you get a can of whatever and fill it up, and now the glass is perfect in a different sense. It's perfect for the task that you want it to do, you need it to do. 
to satisfy your thirst. And what this is saying is that Jesus, the Son of God, who has always been flawless in character, eternally possessing all of God's goodness in himself, but in order for him to become the author of our salvation, in order to fulfill the task of bringing many sons to glory, making us God's children, he had to become human and suffer. He didn't stop being God, but to his deity, he added humanity. Because, and, and okay, so this is going to sound shocking, and I hope it does, but it's the truth. And so we, we got to just let this sink in. As shocking as it sounds, by becoming human, Jesus became even greater than he already was. Not in the sense of his being or his nature, but by becoming human, he could do things for us that he could not do if he were not human, if he had not done this. And the rest of the verses explain what those things are that Jesus could do by becoming human that he could not do if he had not. And I'm excited to show these to you. And I, my prayer, my hope for us is that this will just help increase our appreciation for just how great Jesus is and just fill our hearts to overflowing with gratitude and affection and devotion to him. So why becoming human made Jesus even greater? First, because by becoming human, he really, truly, genuinely can call us family, can regard us as family, his family. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin, or more literally, and I would prefer it translated this way, are all of one. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. I'll explain it in a second. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name. Now he's quoting from the Old Testament. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him, just like my brothers do. I will trust in God the way they do. And behold, I and the children God has given me. The point of these verses is that Jesus became a genuine member of the human family. In verse 11, he who sanctifies, that means the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus. Those who are sanctified means those who are made holy, that's us. Jesus makes us holy through his death and resurrection when we become united to him by faith. We don't make ourselves holy. This is not an achievement of ours, but when we, by faith, become connected to him, Jesus sanctifies us. He makes us holy. 
It says, he who sanctifies, the one doing the sanctifying, and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Meaning, we're all of the same family. We're all from the same ultimate ancestor, Adam. Or you could say we're all of the same stuff, humanity. Jesus became human just like we are. Just like we are. See, he didn't just look like a man. He didn't just act like a man. He wasn't doing the Clark Kent thing, you know. (laughs) Going to work for the Daily Planet as a reporter. But underneath that suit, you know what's there. (laughs) A big S. Right? Why? He's Superman. He's not a man. He's from the planet Krypton. He's an alien. He's not human. He just looks human. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't just take on the appearance of a man. He became a man. It says he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, family. This is astonishing, people. This is astonishing. Look, think about what this is saying. This is saying, back in chapter 1, it says, through whom God created everything, including you and me. This is saying, in a very real sense, our creator became our brother. Wow. And the point of these three quotes from the Old Testament, this is so good. He did this willingly, without shame, without reluctance. He actually wanted to be part of our family. He wanted to join in the praise of God with the people of God. He wanted to be one of us treat us as family, love us as family. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that just give you a deeper sense of appreciation for how great Jesus is? I mean, if you belong to him by faith, get it, he's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. That's incredible. To me, there are times when I feel like he should be ashamed of me. But he's not. I think every family, you know, if it's big enough, maybe just in your immediate family, but if you extend the boundaries out to your extended family, doesn't every family have its black sheep? Right? The one who doesn't quite fit in. The one who uh, has made some questionable choices, done some dishonorable things that are frankly kind of embarrassing, and you just kind of feel like, really, they're in the family? And think about us. And our sin is so foolish, so dishonorable, so utterly inexcusable, Jesus has every reason to regard us as black sheep. And he doesn't. He doesn't. He became fully human to fully embrace you as a full honored member of his family. He doesn't ever stand back and go, oh, okay, yeah, that one over there. No, he comes right up and says, this one's mine. My family. How does that happen? 
How does that happen? It's when you finally stop running away from him. And you just come to him. And you receive his embrace. Jesus told a story one time to help us understand something. To help us understand the heart of God toward lost sinners. We call it the the parable of the prodigal son. And it's about this son who foolishly thought he would be far, far happier if he could just get as far away from his dad as possible. You know, I, I, I can't deal with dad's, you know, standards and rules, and I just got to get away from him. I'll, then I'll be happy. And so he goes off, gets as far away as possible, and he wastes every good thing his father gave him on one stupid choice after another. And then he ran out of money, ran out of friends, and finally came to his senses and realized he was an idiot. And he had everything with his father, and most importantly, his father. And so he, he decides to go back. And he's hoping that maybe, just maybe, his father will, you know, take him back as a hired hand or something. Now, what does the father do? Remember, this is Jesus telling this story so we'll understand the heart of God toward lost, stupid people like that son. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead. And now he's alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus truly became human because he truly, genuinely wants to regard us as family. Jesus, by becoming human, became even greater. Secondly, because by becoming human, he really could die so we don't have to. So he, re- so he could really die. Verse 14. Therefore, since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And he's not talking here just about the literal offspring of Abraham, but the spiritual offspring, those who put faith in God as Abraham did. Now look at the emphasis on the genuineness of Jesus' humanity. He himself likewise partook of the same things, the same flesh and blood, the same 
kind of skin, the same hands, the same feet, very same kind of body, same nerve endings, able to feel the same kinds of pleasure and pain. Why? So he could die. He couldn't die as God. And so he took on humanity to do it. Why? To free us from the enemy we all face. Death. And by death, I'm talking about the separation from all that is good. Separation from God. Because that's what death truly is. That's what makes death terrifying. God did not create us to die. Death only entered the world when humanity rebelled, and we decided we wanted to be independent of God. Well, to be independent of God is to be independent of life. It's to be independent of what's good. It's our sin that makes death so fearful. And it's our sin that the devil uses to destroy us. Tempting us to die by tempting us to rebel against God, the source of life. Tempting us to be independent of God. Jesus came to take that weapon right out of the devil's hand. Look at 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Well, how did he do that? By paying our death penalty for us. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because, and it, you know, in some inexplicable way, because he did not owe the penalty, he could pay it for us. But he had to become a man to do it. And he did. Willingly. It's astonishing. Okay, and this is why this is so awesome. This is so great. This ought to just fill us with gratitude. This ought to just fill us to overflowing with worship for our Savior. Because, if, if, because Jesus did this, if you are a Christian, if you are united to Jesus by faith, death is nothing to fear for you because for you, death no longer exists. Yeah. yeah. He said, well, wait a minute. I know Christians who've died. Christians still die. They die like everybody else, don't they? No. They really don't. Because the moment the body of a Christian stops functioning, they immediately enter the presence of Christ. And one day their bodies will be resurrected to new life. So for the believer in Jesus, there is no experience of death in the true sense of the word. In fact, for the Christian, death has been renamed. You know what the Bible calls it? Sleep. Sleep. How afraid, of you, afraid are you of sleep? Most of us want more. Bring it. 
1 Thessalonians 4.14, For we believe that Jesus died, know that word, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. When Paul was in prison and he was facing the very real possibility of death, execution, he said, you know, frankly, my desire is to depart and what? Be with Christ. For that is far better. For Paul, he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And now we have to remind ourselves of this. We have to remind ourselves of these things because we have a very natural fear of death. I do. But Jesus became a man and died so that we would not die. So it's nothing to fear. He made death as harmless as taking a nap and waking up in his presence. Wow. That's awesome. One more. Becoming human made Jesus even greater because by becoming human, he really can understand our hardest moments. Our hardest, darkest moments. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now look at those words, a merciful and faithful high priest. Let's run over those. Merciful, what does that mean? It means he really cares. He genuinely feels compassion toward our hurts, our suffering, our heartaches. Faithful, that means he always keeps his promises, including his promise to be with us always and never leave us or forsake us. That's a promise. He's faithful. And high priest means he intercedes for us. He intercedes, represents us to God. And here's the thing, God's not angry with us. That's what propitiation means. Big word. What's it mean? It means that because Jesus satisfied God's perfect justice, God is now favorable toward us. Jesus doesn't intercede for us by twisting his father's arm. His father, our father, is inclined to be favorable toward us. So when verse, and he did that through his death, that agonizing death. So when verse 18 says, he himself has suffered, okay, don't, don't think of that as some little thing. It's talking about the worst possible suffering. Bearing our sins in his body on the cross. And in some absolutely unimaginable way, I don't ask me to explain it because I can't, in some way experiencing in himself the wrath of God, the justice of God toward our sin and absorbing it in himself. And when it says he was tempted, it means the hardest possible temptation. You know, you might think, well, 
you know, Jesus never sinned, so he never really experienced temptation. Can't, couldn't have been that hard. <laughs> That's exactly backwards. You and I have never experienced temptation full strength, ever. Why? Because we always give in. <laughs> if it's strong enough, or, or God in his mercy keeps us from experiencing it full strength to protect us. You and I have never experienced temptation full strength. Jesus did. Jesus experienced the worst Satan could throw at him. He felt temptation the way you and I never have. And so, when you're experiencing life at its hardest, and it can be so hard, Jesus knows just how you feel. He knows how it feels to grieve. He knows how it feels to weep. He knows how it feels to be hungry and thirsty and exhausted and sleepless. He knows how it feels to be misunderstood. How it feels to be hated, lied about, mocked. He knows how it feels to be rejected, to be denied, to be betrayed, betrayed, abandoned. He knows how it feels to pray a desperate prayer. Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. What was he talking about? His coming rendezvous with the cross and bearing the wrath of God for our sin. Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. He knows what it feels like to pray a desperate prayer and have it answered. No. And he knows how it feels to face certain death and feel your life slipping away. In our very hardest moments, Jesus can help us because he knows. He knows. And he won't leave you. And he won't forsake you. He will hold you close even when you can't feel him. And he can do that. And he will do that. Because he became one of us. John 1.14, the Word, the eternal Word, the eternal Son of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is so great. Let's pray together. He really, really became a man to really call us family, to die for us so we wouldn't have to, and to be able to help us and understand us and get us through our hardest times. And if you have yet to say yes to him, if you have yet to stop running from him, to stop 
ignoring him, to stop acting like you don't need him. You can, you can stop that foolishness today. And I'm not insulting you. We've all been there. Just stop running. Receive his embrace. Receive, respond to his invitation to become part of his family. And he will embrace you and he will receive you and he will not be ashamed of you. If you say, well, you don't know all I've done. It's pretty bad. It, it doesn't matter. Because what he did is so much greater. He knows and he's not ashamed. He wants you. If you're here this morning and you have received him but you feel ashamed, just put that away. Receive his embrace. Know how he looks at you because he died. It's his righteousness that's on you. He makes you holy. You won't make yourself holy. Receive his gift. Put away the shame. And if you're afraid today of death, and maybe the way you show that fear is by refusing to think about it. That's how most of us handle it. Just know that in Jesus, you're not going to die. Not in the full sense of the term. You're going to enter his presence if you trust him. And he will raise you up. Father, um, what an amazing Savior you've given us in your Son, Jesus. And Lord, will you help us appreciate and trust and believe and pay attention to your Son more than we pay attention to anybody else. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.